Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast is Eric Henry and Steve Needleman. Steve and Eric are both with King & Spaulding's FDA and Life Sciences practice, and they provide a lot of insights and wisdom and practical tips for you as medical device company on preparing for FDA inspections and, frankly, other audit activities as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And of course, we're all aware of everything that's happening in the world today. And quite a few episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast, we've talked about sort of the impact that things like COVID and, and the global pandemic have had on our industry. Uh, joining me uh, to chat a little bit about some of the things that uh, we can do to better prepare uh, as an industry are Steve Needleman. Steve is the lead quality systems and compliance consultant to the FDA and life sciences practice team at King & Spalding. And uh, also joining is Eric Henry. Eric is the Senior Quality Systems and Compliance Advisor with FDA and Life Sciences Practice at King & Spalding as well. So, gentlemen, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Yeah, great to be here. Well, last time that we spoke, we, we started to dive into, you know, a few different things that are, you know, where there's some adjustments and, and things that, you know, we need to be aware of or factor in to our lives, but also from a regulatory and from an FDA perspective. And uh, I think one of you suggested, hey, you know, might, might be a good time to kind of talk about what to do to prepare for an upcoming uh, inspection, how to prepare for that. So I thought we would dive into that for a little bit today. So I guess once live or probably for the foreseeable uh, future remote inspections resume, do we have any idea of where FDA is going to focus first? Yeah, John, uh, FDA, you know, they, they, as we mentioned during the last podcast, uh, you know, FDA has uh, on July 20th came out with a plan to resume inspections, albeit they are really rarely taking place. Um, but they are going to focus initially on mission critical inspections and, and their definition of a mission critical inspection would be a four cause inspection, a compliance follow up. Certainly a public health emergency, an imminent risk to health, or, or pre-approvals certainly that are focused right now on, on pandemic-related uh, breakthrough products. Those will be their targets initially because there will be a bunch of catch-up that's necessary. So you can expect that if you've had a warning letter, if you've had some kind of correspondence from the agency, they're going to come in to verify corrections, determine your current status. And one of the concerns that Eric and I had in identifying this as a potential podcast item is, you know, there's it's been quite some time since many firms have undergone some inspections, and we felt it would be a good reminder for folks to get their house in shape once re inspections resume. All right. Any other thoughts on that, Eric, before we dive into the next tidbit here? No. Well, I just this, you know, I think because the FDA is going to resume remote inspections in this prioritized way, this very risk-based approach. 
to when they begin to resume on-site inspections. I think that even maybe more so than they have been in the past, the MDSAP inspections that for those people that are part of the MDSAP program would be would be relied on for for routine inspections to to qualify as as a, a routine inspection for the FDA. Uh, we had talked a little bit in in the last podcast that we had about remote inspections, and I think uh, those will continue for some time, both under the MDSAP program. And the EU, I know we're talking a little bit about preparing for FDA inspections, but I think it's worth noting that that on-site inspections are also a requirement under the EU medical device regulation. And in fact, the European Commission on January 11th, so very, very recently, published its comments on uh, on on-site inspections versus remote inspections, and they reiterated the importance of on-site inspections and that they are a requirement of the regulation, but also uh, sort of following way late on the tail of the MDCG guidance allowing for remote inspection said that they did concur that that was good rationale for those remote inspections, but that they were they wanted to make sure that beyond the the absolute lockdowns that COVID is requiring, that those in, in on-site inspections resume as quickly as possible, and that regulatory competent authorities within the EU keep the European Commission informed on, on how those remote programs are going and, and any particular issues they might have with compliance to the regulation using that program. Okay. I mean, you, you bring up an interesting point on like the MD-SEP side of things. You know, if I'm a firm that's that's going through that process, is is my preparation for for MD SAP going to be different than like an FDA inspection? And I, I think you know to highlight some of the things that that Steve mentioned as far as like how FDA is going to prioritize and focus. You know, there's going to be sounds like there's going to be a, an emphasis put on maybe more for cause or firms that you know maybe had some some previous observations or warrant letter situations. Can you kind of compare and contrast my preparation as a firm with respect to uh, FDA versus MDSAP or other types of audits? Yeah, sure can. So whether you're going through um, a notified body audit for compliance to the EU MDR or under the MDSAP program, uh, you know, keep in mind that that the the tone, the the nature of those inspections and audits seem it tends to be quite different than what the FDA will likely execute, especially in the case of a four-cause or a 43 or warning letter follow-up or even a pre-market inspection. So where the MDSAP inspection is likely to be very broad, it covers all the contents, you know, using ISO 1345 2016 as the fundamental basis for the MDSAP audit program with tailoring for specific, the specific uh, country regulations that may deviate some from that. They'll hit each of those elements during the MDSAP audit. And so preparation is pretty broad, but also likely not quite as deep as you might get during a four-cause 43 pre-market type of inspection. So the way I see preparation differing is that in a 43 or warning letter, or even for that matter, a four-cause inspection, you're going to have specific areas of exposure that you need to make sure are addressed in the inspection. So in a 43 and warning letter reinspection, you've likely already agreed with the FDA on a set of actions 
and how those need to be executed over a certain period of time. You've been giving them likely periodic updates on your progress. So during the reinspection, you need to show clear evidence that those actions have been completed. If you've done a quality management system remediation of your within your program, you need to show that those actions have been completed and tie those in as much as possible to those actions that you committed to the FDA. And I would recommend also that you pre-stage the warning letter or 483. Uh, you pre-stage the all of the updates you've given to the FDA, the documentation that supported the completion of all the actions on a pretty wide basis, meaning that not just the action that says this is complete, but associated processes, chart, progress indicators, uh, program management plans, and so on. In a four-cause inspection, you know, again, those are especially those likely unannounced in many cases, but if you do get some warning, I'd recommend doing something like a heat map where you can understand clearly what your level of exposure is on each of these areas you know the FDA is concerned about. And, you know, think about things like Kappa or other things that you can quickly move to execute or begin executing that show how committed you are to resolving those issues and provide those as, you know, for the FDA. In the case of a pre-market inspection, I think the, the preparation differs primarily in its focus, right? So we're an MDCEPs covering the whole quality system in a pre-market inspection from the FDA. You're going to look at product-specific information, records, data, clinical data, study data. You're going to do deep dives into the design history file and device master record for that particular device. If you're doing a manufacturing tour, as is common across audits and inspections, you'll need to tailor that specific. If your manufacturing site manufactures more than one product, you'll have to tailor that tour and that route that you're going to plan ahead specifically for that product. And I would say that as you prepare your subject matter experts, you'll need to provide more emphasis and more preparation and more drills for your technical and your clinical subject matter experts that are related to the design, the development, the clinical testing, the manufacture of that particular product very deeply, more so than you would for an MD-SAP inspection. Yeah, let me add just a very, let me yeah, just add sure. very few uh, additional thoughts to what Eric has, has very, you know, very eloquently and, and really deeply uh, articulated. You need to make sure you're going to have examples to be able to demonstrate it works. You're going to need to be able to demonstrate illustrative examples to demonstrate that the SOPs have been applied and here are examples and here are the changes and this is what we've seen and here are products that we've manufactured to demonstrate that the issue has been addressed. And you can expect that, I, I would suggest that they may come back and if it's not product specific, they may pick another product to see if you've looked at it cross product lines to ensure that you're taking a holistic approach, especially if it's a quality system issue. Yeah, so, really uh, you know, you, yeah. you really need to make sure that you've looked at issues systemically and not just in isolated examples. And again, it's all about making sure you have evidence to demonstrate that it's been effective. Yeah, that systemic approach, John, you know, that's probably, you know, in Steve's experience and mine as well, that's probably one of the biggest gotchas in inspections where the FDA is coming back after having looked at you before, is that if you if they don't see evidence that you solve the problem systemically across your quality system, across your product lines, across your various organizational entities, 
and instead you're just trying to solve the specific example they cited, um, you can expect a, uh, a repeat uh, citation and maybe worse. For sure. I mean, I think this is what, what you guys are both uh, uh, talking about is probably why CAPA remains to be like the, the number one issue cited during uh, FDA inspections. You know, it seems like people are, or companies are very quick to kind of slap a Band-Aid on it, so to speak, and and try to get through that CAPA exercise very quickly. But they uh, could do a little bit uh, better job uh, to uh, get to the true root cause and address it from more of a systemic issue perspective. So Exactly. I mean, there, there are sometimes there are so many CAPAs are open you need to prioritize. But just the signal that, well, we've opened up CAPA, uh, I've I've been at firms. I'm sure Eric has been at firms. CAPAs have been open for two or three years, and there's no activity. Yeah. So um, the premise is you're going to you're going to address the uh, root cause. You're going to determine um, an effective outcome and be able to demonstrate it through verification of effectiveness. For sure. Like the last time that that uh, the three of us spoke, we talked uh, a little bit about some of the uh, things that have happened uh, as a result of pandemic, including things like EUAs and uh, 564As. And just to remind folks, there are 564A um, companies that, that um, I, I guess were granted this. I, guess, I don't know if the, the right verb there is, but anyway, we'll sure. go with granted. Yeah, what so was that? Five. Go ahead. I was just going to say that you know the 564 basically uh, allow companies to um, proceed, but gave them a QMS exemption. Um, yeah. So you know, obviously, this is something that needs to be addressed uh, on a go forward basis. So, any thoughts oh, about that? A- absolutely. The, you know, 564A was uh, you have to demonstrate when we submit those those applications on behalf of clients. You have to demonstrate some level of a quality of a quality system um whether it be 9001 whether it be the automotive quality system aerospace etc um but at the end of the day um as firms come out of these exemptions um at some point they're going to be expected to be compliant with uh, 21 cfr part 820 or if at that time at some point in the future the agency adopts iso the iso requirements um, which we are all anxiously awaiting for that announcement, which will probably be coming at some point this year. Um, but, but nonetheless, you know, uh, the, this exemption was created to allow non-traditional device manufacturers to manufacture devices. And so, coming out of this pandemic, as we mentioned, as you referenced, and we mentioned during our last podcast, that um, you know they need they need to be building their uh, compliance with 820. Um, if they intend to stay in the device business. Yeah, I, I would I would say that, and I think we mentioned this a little during the last podcast, so I'd encourage people to go back and reference that as well. But just to briefly restate, you know, if you are new to the industry or, or have an exemption, a QMS exemption that requires you to do significant remediation of your existing quality system to come into compliance with the quality system regulation or in the future, 1345, 2016, you really need to look at this in four steps, in my view, in the way we're encouraging companies to do as well, which is, first of all, to sort of scope what QMS elements you need to have. What does perfect look like within the quality system, right? And then do a gap assessment against what you already do uh, to see where you're falling short of that quality system. And then in a prioritized way, a risk-based way, 
prioritize those uh, the uh, the resolution of the closure of those gaps so that you're hitting things that that address significant compliance issues, safety issues, efficacy issues right up top uh, immediately, and then uh, you plan those the those uh, uh, the remediation, the closure of those gaps based on that risk level priority, and finally you execute against that plan. And that execution needs to be accompanied by a pretty comprehensive program plan that says, here's the full list of things we intend to do in priority order, when we're going to start and end them, and who's responsible, and then keep those up to date with progress. Because it is, you know, it's one of those inevitable Murphy's Law kind of things that the FDA or an MDSAP auditor is going to show up on your front door before you fully completed that quality system remediation program in full. And so because of that, it's important that you've handled the ones that they would be most, the issues they'd be most concerned with first, and that you show progress against the remaining issues that you haven't yet gotten to. You have the gaps you haven't yet closed to reduce the risk of uh, findings or, or further enforcement actions because your quality system is not compliant. Do you um, think that the, like the, uh, the QCIT guidance is, is a good tool for companies that, are, that have this 564A exemption? Um, I think it is a good tool. Um, there's a couple of tools I, I would actually recommend um, for the 564A. And again, I know that the FDA has not, um, has not yet gone to uh, uh, ISO 1345 2016. But if you look at the MDSAP program um, and specifically – uh, they have a document called the MDSAP Audit Approach Policy that they published, I uh, uh, think, third, third or fourth quarter last year that outlines all the 1345 requirements and feathers into that the 21 CFR 820 requirements, which is the quality system regulation, where they might differ from 1345. And I think if you're looking at a full quality system, what do I do? QCIT is good, but QCIT focuses on, on a few areas, the heavy hitter areas that FDA would come in and hit during an inspection, during a, a quality system inspection. Um, uh, and, and it'll certainly cover the bulk of where you might have exposure in the quality system. But if you want to really see where all of the details are and where the full quality system is laid bare and, and, and presented in a way that you can develop action items on across the entire entire set of processes, I might encourage you to go to that MDSAP audit approach, even yeah, in preparation idea. for an FDA inspection. It's a really good idea. Yeah, and everybody needs to keep in mind conformance to the quality system is a baseline. It's not the gold standard. Right. It's considered a minimal requirement. Um, and, uh, you know, I, don't, I would encourage firms that are under 564A, as we stated the last time, they, they need to, uh, if, they're, if they're planning on continuing to manufacture these devices post-pandemic, they, they, as Eric mentioned and, and we have spoken in the past, they need to start moving uh, towards compliance with these requirements. Terrific. Folks, I want to remind you that I'm talking with Steve Needleman and Eric Henry. Both gentlemen are part of the FDA and life sciences practice at King and Spalding. Uh, gentlemen, do you mind maybe uh, sharing a few words about the, the FDA and life sciences practice at King and Spalding and uh, you know, what types of services that you help uh, medical device companies with? Gladly. Uh, the FDA and life science practice at King and Spalding has a significant amount of depth and expertise in all areas of um, FDA compliance, FDA requirements, 
as well as reimbursement and you know CMS requirements for those firms needing assistance with reimbursement issues, coding issues, et cetera. Um, we have uh, extremely knowledgeable attorneys as King & Spaulding is a law firm, an international law firm um, with expertise in FDA practices all over the world. And um, our attorneys, many of which are former FDA chief counsel attorneys, um, we have uh, a number of other folks from in, with deep industry experience. The depth of our and knowledge of our attorneys is exceptional and, and have been recognized as uh, in the past many, many times as the FDA practice of the year by many law organizations. We assist in all post-market, pre-market um, clinical study areas. We assist with internal investigations, uh, white collar issues, um, other types of investigations. Um, Eric and I are part of a consulting group within the practice uh, that assists firms with quality system remediation, um, not hopefully in a proactive way, uh, but often are found to assist firms um, that are reacting to uh, FDA findings and, and FDA issues. Um, we have a clinical staff on, on staff as well to assist with health hazard evaluations a renowned uh, cardiovascular um, physician um, who has served as the chief medical officer, so is familiar with FDA requirements um, and expectations for health hazard evaluations to support recalls, et cetera. We, we really do provide all services that can be associated with any FDA-regulated uh, industry um, from conception all the way through um, we we work with firms to to uh, help them go out of business um, and and retire registrations internationally. So we are basically cradle to grave on all FDA all issues. Service. Terrific! Thank you yeah. for sharing that. And folks, you can learn more uh, certainly by going to kslaw.com. I uh, want to re remind you too that since we're talking about inspection prep. Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you as well. Greenlight Guru has the only medical device quality management system software platform in the industry. It's been designed specifically and exclusively for medical device companies by actual medical device professionals. And many of our, well, all of our customers, frankly, are going through some sort of audit and inspection as part of their life cycle as a medical device company. This is just standard course and standard operating uh, procedure for any medical device company. And we, we hear stories all the time from our customers uh, how the Greenlight Guru medical device quality management system platform is making their audit activities much, much smoother, even in times like we're in now where the need for remote inspection has you know uh, uh, become a thing. Uh, it's become a reality. So learn more by going to www greenlight.guru and be happy to have a conversation with you. All right. So getting back to uh, the conversation, you know, and I guess keeping in mind that, that as uh, inspections resume, there's a pretty good chance that a lot of the, the companies that are going to be subject to inspection, this might be their first time, uh, or maybe it's been a long time. So uh, what are some of the, the prep uh, steps that that you have in mind for companies that may be doing going through this FDA inspection for the first time, or it's been a long time since since their last one. Yeah, uh, just just briefly, and then I'll, I'll pass it over to Steve. Both both of us, I, I think we could almost do an entire uh, podcast just on this one question because there's not only some some great fundamentals that every company needs to go through, but there's a wide variation in circumstances and in, in, in capabilities within companies that sort of drive how 
preparation occurs. But I would just to kind of go through a bullet list of things to think about. And obviously, this would be tailored to your situation, your staff, your circumstances, what kind of inspection you're going through. But you, you might want to start off, especially if you get a notice of inspection, with doing things like profiling the investigator. And there's a couple of tools out there you can use to to do that, to determine you know, what level of expertise that this investigator has, which might give you a sense of where they would focus their efforts, where their sweet spot is, what their personality is like, what are the nature and frequency of the observations that they make at companies. And again, that kind of intelligence can be had from a couple of sources out, out there. You need to do things like prepare opening presentations, not so much marketing your products, but giving the investigator right up front a sense of what your firm does, uh, how many people there are, what kinds of products that you manufacture, uh, maybe a high-level overview of your quality system um, and your manufacturing process. You need to look at things like uh, staging, uh, SOPs, and records so that they're quickly available to the front room uh, when necessary in an inspection. Um, in some cases, if you, in a case of something like a warning letter, reinspection, or a pre-market inspection, there are certain documents you might even want to pre-stage in the front room itself um, instead of just having in the back room in reserve so that they can just reach back and grab them immediately on demand. You want to make sure that you're staffing appropriately with the right roles and the right skill sets, both in the front room and in the back room and with your subject matter experts. You need to have a front room and a back room. Uh, you know, the room where the, the auditors are going to be, that's the front room where your host is. The back room where all the support staff are that manage the requests that are made, bring the subject matter expertise to bear, track all the documentation that's being moved into the front, um, keep things going and, and so that you can answer the FDA's questions in the most expert way possible and in the most expeditious way possible. Uh, you should do dry runs, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how important those are later, both in two, really two flavors of dry ones, runs. One, to vet people that are going to be in the inspection uh, providing uh, uh, providing direct interface to the FDA so that you make sure you have the right people in the room. Sometimes the person who knows the most about a particular topic is not the person that should be saying what they know in front of the FDA. Uh, so you want to make sure you have the right people in the front and then also um, have, a, have a full dry run of the entire inspection so that you get the mechanics of that kind of uh, worked out and get the kinks worked out of the system of being able to respond to the FDA. Obviously, look at tools that you need for things like communication, managing questions, scribing. Uh, determining whether you're going to provide what systems you might provide electronic records directly to an investigator versus paper records. Most companies still provide mostly paper records to the FDA during inspection, but there is some migration occurring to electronic in certain cases. Um, get that workflow between the front room and the back room down. Prepare your site tours with predetermined paths. Make those parts of your dry run. Have the clinical data that you need to support safety and efficacy available and easily accessible. Um, and obviously, have an, have an SOP that drives all this um, yeah, that's key. and make sure that you're following that so that it's not just reinventing the wheel every single time. Um, and finally, I, I'll say before I turn over to, to Steve, who I'm sure has a, a plethora of other ideas as well, because he's been through this many, many times on the other side of the table, uh, the one asking the questions. And that is to sort of pre-structure. Uh, what you anticipate might be custom report queries that would that are requested. 
So in many cases, they may ask for certain types of complaint records or certain lists of complaint records over certain periods of time for certain products or capital lists or whatever. And some of those, a tool will just churn out. But in some cases, uh, you may be asked to generate reports or lists of things with certain criteria or under certain parameters. And so you need to be prepared to, to generate those queries and in, in those reports to the FDA in a reasonable time. And sometimes that takes a little preparation as well. Yeah, let, let me give you some, my, my, some fine points to what Eric has, um, has, has already articulated and, and has provided an excellent uh, summary of what, what needs to be done. Um, it, it's important during your opening presentation, you have current tables of organizations that are available to show lines of responsibility, management responsibility. And since it's been quite some time since the last inspections, you might wanna make sure they're updated and, and fresh. Uh, there may have been some personnel changes over this period of time. Um, make sure that the SOPs that you have prepared for the investigator, um, that they're being followed. Um, it's not uncommon for an investigator to ask, uh, show me, uh, as they're doing a tour of the floor, Show me in your SOP or SOP what you're doing. And if they have to dig all the way down at the bottom of the fourth drawer of their desk, it does not present a very uh, favorable um, approach. They need to have current SOPs or the SOP that they're following is four versions late. So you need to be careful about that too. So, uh, you know, make sure everything is fresh. Make sure everything is, is up to date um, and is ready, inspection ready. Uh, make sure the employees know their roles and responsibilities from the security guards and the receptionist when the FDA walks in and shows their credentials and or badge, both. Some may have badges. If they're from the field, those that come from the center do not. Um, they need to sit and wait, make sure notice of inspection has been issued before any uh, inspection begins. Um, make sure on your uh, SOP uh, that your ordered SOP and your and your opening presentation articulate your policies with regard to, as Eric mentioned, the availability of electronic records. And if you do make electronic records available, or you give them access to electronic records, make sure that you don't have availability to your entire system. It's a scrubbed computer. It just provides the information they are they are getting. They can't search elsewhere make sure it's very limited in the scope of what they're able to do um, and, and, and be able to access during, during that inspection. Um, some SMEs need to, be, need to be also be audit friendly and audit ready. As Eric mentioned, I've been in front of expert, expert SOPs who when I challenge them in preparation for an inspection will tell me it's the stupidest question they've ever heard. That does not go over well, so not everybody is order-facing ready. Um, that opening presentation should clearly articulate your availability, as I mentioned, of photographs and other things, so that it doesn't look like it was an ad hoc decision of FDA asks um, to, to do something that you do not want to share, such as signing of affidavits, um, so that you know you want to say you're not you don't want to be in um, conflict with your with your audit procedures. As Eric said, the front room and back room are critical. Front room being the audit-facing room, the back room is the is the glue uh, that keeps an inspection on track. Most important, make sure IT is ready. 
Um, I've had I've been at firms where all of a sudden FDA shows up and they clear out a conference room. IT is nowhere to be found. They're on coffee breaks. They can't get the equipment ready. They don't know where the computers are for scribing, et cetera. IT needs to be ready. And that's where these mock audits and mock inspections help to get them ready and know what their roles are. Everybody needs to sort of know their roles. There should be a call down list. Um, It should when FDA uh, shows up so that everybody's aware that FDA is on the uh, premises. And, uh, you know, it's important to ensure uh, success by having daily updates and addressing any issues that may be found during during the day that may be identified, should be identified by the investigator at the conclusion of each day, potential 483 items, et cetera. Yeah, that's great uh, tips. I mean, a couple things. I mean, what, hearing both of your comments certainly um, emphasizes uh, the importance of doing some some dry run and mock inspection activities as, as preparation. And I think a lot of times, unfortunately, what I experience or, or hear from companies is that they're, uh, when they get notice of an FDA inspection, it's like, it's like a, everybody's scrambling, right? And, and it's like, time out. This is, this is the normal, it should be normal everyday business. The fact that FDA is coming for an inspection, I mean, okay, that's a little abnormal from the normal flow of day-to-day activities. But nonetheless, you know, FDA doesn't have to uh, give you advance notice that they're coming, nor does an ISO auditor. So we should be prepared for this all the time. So this is probably, you know, something that companies should should think about as part of their internal auditing program is, you know, do more dry runs and mock inspections, make sure the IT set up. I think IT is really important, uh, especially now, uh, considering that that a lot of these audit and inspection activities are probably going to have a remote component to it, which is going to have uh, some sort of technology involved in some way, shape or form. But, you know, talking about dry runs and inspections, uh, what other things do you think are really important about this uh, that, that companies should be considering? Yeah, you know, I've done a number of mock audits, mock inspections since leading FDA. And, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges sounds stupid, but, uh, you know, just the entry to the firm. Um, and, um, you know, walking in, identifying yourself as an FDA investigator uh, with credentials and or a badge. Um, and the secretary or receptionist has no idea what to do, where to go, who to call. Oh, who are you, who are you here to see? What are you here to do? Oh, uh, well, why don't you go down the hall and go see uh, so-and-so? You know, there should be a formal process from the very get-go. And, yeah. And, and, you know, everybody in that chain needs to know their role and needs to know their responsibilities. And, and these mock audits um, are critical. I mean, you know, you know, the old adage, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. To your point, everybody should be audit ready at all times. People should also be familiar with the relatively recent uh, FDA guidance on inspections. Uh, well, they will uh, not for cause, but for generally other inspections, for the most, they will give you five days notice. Um, they have a time frame for conducting inspections, um, but of course, they also have the right to uh, stay longer if there are issues associated with recalls, complaints, etc. Uh, but generally, most inspections will now last. They're sort of predictive in three to five days, um, and they are to provide you daily updates. 
so that you know where you stand, um, and that, which they should have been doing all along anyhow. Some investigators, unfortunately, don't like to follow those rules, um, but you, everybody should certainly be, as you mentioned, audit ready, ready to go, and, and the best way to get there is through these mock audits. Internal audits should be identifying everything FDA finds. It, it, it always surprises me when I go into a firm that's that's had 14 or 15 observations from FDA. They get a warning letter or they're about to be enjoined and you ask, what are the last internal audits? Oh, we found two, three things. Then your internal audit program is not adequate. Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity for you to self-identify with no consequence. And they need to be as robust as FDA inspections. I mean, I would even go a step further. I, I think a, a company should consider their internal auditing should be way more robust than any FDA inspection. Um, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I would say, you know, just going back to the to the mock piece, and again, you can use mock inspections if you want to do that sort of full up front room, back room, and do as an, as part of your internal audit program. That's that's a great way to kill two birds with one stone. If the timing aligns, um, I, I would say just a couple of extra points on 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 dry runs or mock inspections. First of all, realize that they do take time, resources, and money. So don't go in. You know, understand that you're going to be taking people away from their normal day jobs. You're going to have to set up some things. You're going to have to allocate space, take people and uh, um, uh, tools, uh, put those together, assemble those in ways that that um, actually do have some cost and some impact to other work that you're doing. So recognize it up front, but also realize that up to a certain degree, there's value to that. I mean, you can overdo anything, you can overspend on any of these preparation activities, but there's value to that up to a certain point. And I would say that those dry runs too should come in a couple of flavors. First of all, especially for organizations that are new, to getting these kinds of inspections. And they really don't know, the people have never been through them. And I've been through a lot of this where I'm, I'm talking to people that have never been in front of the FDA. And even in the mock, they're scared to death. They don't know how, how to conduct themselves. They don't know if they're gonna say too much or too little. They've heard these horrible war stories from people about horrible things that have happened in front rooms. And so those first few sessions need to be very gentle. They need to be more coaching. If I was the FDA and I was to ask you this, how would you answer? Or just answer you between us and let's work on the wording after you say, say it how you would say it if we were just over a beer. And then let's talk about how you might reword that if you were asked that in a more formal setting. So be very coachy, very mentor-like and, and approach them like that. And then, you know, the next, the second or third or fourth time through this, then you begin to say, okay, I'm going to put my FDA hat on. And I'm going to be very much like what I think an FDA investigator would be like, or you're going to get an expert in who's been through those or who's done those, who doesn't know your people and could be a little more assertive and, and be an outside person that they won't recognize. And so they'll be a little bit more formal by nature uh, and by instinct and get that down and then have those hats on moments. But then when something goes wrong or somebody doesn't say something, or you just want to go through a few topics and then get some feedback and say, okay, now my hat, my FDA hat is off. Let's recap, or let's look at some ways we can reword these things. So I think just having that formal and informal sort of stages and types of dry runs um, is, is very important. And I also think that those dry runs uh, can provide input to sort of storyboarding or 
laying outlines or scripting responses to areas that as you do them, you see are very tricky, uh, where you might have an area where you've got more explaining to do or where there's some compliance gaps that you need to kind of work around and tell them how you've progressed through it, but it's not an easy explanation um, because maybe you're using terminology or concepts or multiple locations and it gets it can get confusing. So you lay those out in a clear storyboard and it gives you indicators where that's going to fall apart in the front room. Uh, yeah. So just a, a couple of things on that dry run front. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an important. I mean, I, I've been through enough of these. I know both of you have as well that, that sometimes the person being or subject to the inspection or the audit, I mean, they're, they're terrified and, you know, and, and that fear um, really becomes a, an impediment to, to, you know, good progress during an inspection. I mean, you know, I think, I think that's why, you know, these dry runs and mock inspections are really key so that people who are going to be part of this activity that their minds are at ease a little bit, that they've kind of rehearsed it, so to speak. And I don't mean it to sound like it's rehearsing something for, for you know, to, to try to hide something. It's really about a rhythm. And, and you know, I, I remember the first FDA inspection I, I sat in, I was, I was absolutely terrified and I didn't have coaching and we didn't do a mock inspection. And I, you know, I, the, the little bit of, uh, of uh, advice that I was given is don't say too much, just answer the question directly. And I'm like, yeah. So, you know, these, these dry runs and mock inspections, I think can be really helpful. I guess as we, yeah, sure. Let me me just, let let me just add a couple of thoughts to that. So especially concerning is during tours and FDA questions or asks people that are doing their job on the line um, those guys are totally petrified. These are many times hourly workers. They don't know the big picture. They don't know everything that's going on. And sometimes they misstate information, not because they're intentionally doing it. They just get flustered. They have no yeah. idea. They have no clue. And before you know it, you know, it, it becomes a rabbit hole because then their story conflicts with what management is saying. And before you know it, there are suspicions, et cetera, et cetera. That's why these mock audits of getting these folks, you know, everybody, everybody gets up in the morning. Everybody, the, the FDA investigator is no different than anybody else. And, you know, they're, they're human beings. And, uh, you know, it, it's really concerning. I, I've been in, I was in a mock audit where FDA was starting to draw Title 18 conclusions because the person they spoke to on the floor conflicted what what was stated in the in the office. So you got to be really careful. And uh, sometimes, quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of value to having third parties come in to do these mock audits so that it's not somebody you're always buddy buddy with, and so they yeah. get accustomed to strange faces asking questions, probing questions, and and getting getting familiar with those kind of situations. I think that's a really good tip. I mean, some, sometimes that third-party objectivity does two things. It, it's somebody from the outside coming in who, you know, you, you as the auditee are uh, sort of in that hot seat, so to speak, but, but um, need to, to present information to, to satisfy the, the questions that are being asked. But, uh, you know, so it's a fresh lens, but also gets the person going through the audit used to and familiar with people that they don't work with on the everyday basis asking those questions. So I think that's a really exactly. good Exactly. And as you said, it's a fresh set of eyes. It sometimes will highlight issues that are unbiased and, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. You, you Sometimes you're, you're blinded by what you see every day. So 
sometimes, you know, there's there's a lot of value for us or anybody else yeah. to come in and do some of these mock audits. I mean, and this is what you, the two of you do for a living. So, sure. and, and you do it for, for a lot of companies of all shapes and sizes all over the place. So uh, you have a lot more context for sure. So I guess as we start to, you know, work toward wrapping up today's conversation, questions. So should my inspection preparation in, include uh, preparing for remote inspections or should I assume that the FDA will not be resuming inspections until they can be on site for the entire time? I would prepare in a hybrid fashion. You know, there's there's really no authority for FDA to conduct virtual inspections for devices. Although they're working, we understand that there's initiatives ongoing to consider uh, trying to develop some kind of a program. It requires some legal finagling uh, along the way. If, if FDA can't issue a notice of inspection, it's not an inspection. So we have heard situations, we've heard examples of where firms, FDA has shown up, issued a, 480, a, a, a notice of inspection, um, left and did the rest of it virtually um, so that they were covered. Because if, 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 if they uncover any evidence or any information without a notice of inspection, it's totally inadmissible. They can't do anything with it. Um, so the notice of inspection is critical. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to develop something to do a virtual. Uh, as Eric indicated, MedSAP inspections are being conducted virtually. So for those in the MedSAP program, you need to continue to be prepared to conduct them virtually. Um, I would suggest that if as time goes on and vaccines start to roll out, that you will start seeing more uh, the greater possibility of FDA on-site inspections. And in, in preparation for that, I would still expect firms that might not have considered this in the past to be well prepared with PPP, uh, protective gear. Um, I think there'll be a period of time where FDA will expect you to continue to follow those, uh, to have that available. They will certainly follow all CDC guidance and guidelines uh, on that. Um, for those of you who, are in the, who do combination products and are in the farmer world as well, they are exercising, FDA is utilizing their 704A authority to collect information, um, information uh, records requests um, that they are using and reviewing in helping to prioritize future inspections. And they have indicated to me that information collected during those 704A requests for documentation, um, if they see it's uh, problematic, they have issued they will be issuing, if noted, I don't know if they've actually done it, untitled and warning letters um, to those firms where they felt that information was was not adequate. So, you know, I, it, it, I think the answer is it depends. And I think timing is going to be of the issue. Um, obviously, the pandemic is still uh, quite significant and it seems to be getting worse, not better, at least for the short term. Um, hopefully, vaccines will help start bringing us into control over the next uh, period of time. But, but yeah, if you're under the MedSAP inspection, European inspections, EU inspections, they're they're virtual. Um, so I, I, I think um, as more and more firms become MedSAP oriented, they they should be prepared for that for the virtual right. concept. Yeah, John, FDA, I, I think it's a little up in the air. Yeah, John, I won't, I won't, um, I won't talk too much about this topic. I, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about remote inspections and how they'll happen and when, and 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 how they're how the the world, the regulatory world is going to progress in that direction or not. Um, 
I'll just give this one piece, a little, this one little tidbit piece of advice. If you are preparing a remote inspection, just kind of as a throwaway for free. Um, if you plan for remote inspections, pay particular attention to how the remote inspection will work during a manufacturing floor tour. Um, how are you going to stay position the cameras? What tools are you going to use to be able to walk around and continue to describe and, and also provide commentary? Um, what technology are you going to use? Um, and also, does the signal strength of your Wi-Fi or however you're going to provide connectivity, does it does it maintain its strength and availability for the entire route that you have planned for your floor tour? Oftentimes on many of these manufacturing floors, especially for, you know, where there's a lot of, of heavy metal and, and uh, you know, in the case of uh, imaging equipment, you have a lot of lead-lined rooms um, that kind of get in the way of these signals and you'll have a lot of dead spots. So um, I'd pay particular attention in remote inspection preparation to how you would conduct a floor tour. Hey, can, can I, let, let me introduce a little bit of a sidebar here. Uh, many firms, you know, you still have, if, if you're manufacturing, you still have a requirement to have supplier quality oversight. Uh, many firms have established remote um, supplier audit procedures, um, including virtual inspection capability with their suppliers um, to ensure the quality of, of the products they're getting. So some firms are set up with this, and I, I, I know I have been approached by at least three companies looking to establish uh, virtual inspection capabilities um, that uh, they, they feel will be as effective as an on-site inspection. Um, uh, so I, I know there's a lot of movement in this area. Um, some firms, like I said, if they're doing virtual supplier audit, and there is there are a number of companies that are out there providing that service, and I think many of them are overbooked already. But yeah, I think I think you know the virtual world is is here for quite a while, and I think it's something uh, that yeah. people need to be prepared for. Yeah, totally agreed, gentlemen. I know that we're just skimming the surface on this topic of inspection preparation. And I appreciate all the tidbits and practical advice that you've provided today. So Eric Henry, Senior Quality Systems and Compliance Advisor, and Steve Needleman, Lead Quality Systems and Compliance Consultant, both with the FDA and Life Sciences Practice team at King & Spalding. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights and wisdom on this particular topic today. Thank you. It's great to thank be with you, you for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. And folks, as I've mentioned earlier, we're here to help at Greenlight Guru as well. If you'd like to learn more about the Greenlight Guru Medical Device Quality Management System software platform, please go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, thank you for being loyal listeners. Uh, it's because of you, the Global Medical Device Podcast continues to be the number one podcast in the medical device industry. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>